I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. On the intersection at the end of this street, there was a pile of bodies um, right on the corner that were obviously very close to where the bomb had gone off. Probably 20 bodies, 20 people, um, many of them already dead, others that were still moving. I'm Sarah Wilson and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. It's been one whole year since the Taliban took Kabul, Afghanistan's capital. We all remember those chaotic and confronting images of the militants entering the city as allied forces and tens of thousands of Afghans tried to evacuate after 20 years of conflict. The planes taking off with kids still hanging on and then falling to their death. As all of this was happening, Australian photographer Andrew Quilty chose to fly into Ground Zero. He'd been at a friend's wedding in France, but returned to the place that he has called home since 2013 to, from what I can tell, ensure that we continued to bear witness to the story of Afghanistan. In today's episode, Andrew and I finally got to sit down after following each other on social media for some time to discuss a rambling, deeply intimate, wild question. What matters amid indescribable human ugliness and pain in war zones, but also in comfortable first world humdrum? You might recognize Andrew's work, which has won nine Walkley Awards, including the big gold one. His images of life in Afghanistan during the conflict were harrowing and defining. Scenes of heaped bodies like a Cavaggio hellscape, the intimate and surreal image of a man lying dead on an operating table. A family of seven limbless children hobbling across a desert to school. His photographs often forced me to, at the very least, be aware of my ignorance of the details of this conflict that has dipped in and out of headlines for pretty much the bulk of my adult life. Andrew has now written a book called August in Kabul, documenting this historic moment, the taking of the city and and this evacuation, told through the eyes of Afghans. Today, half the country is starving. The place is a mess. But Ukraine and other catastrophes have bumped Afghanistan's plight from the front pages. And in some ways, I wanted this conversation with Andrew to be a 101 reminder on the nuances of the conflict, lest we forget. But my conversation with Andrew goes in a very intimate direction as we explore some truly confronting and ugly truths about conflict 
but also about the emptiness that privileged conveyor belt life in Australia can often present. I won't preface things too much, but I will have to give a bit of a trigger warning. Andrew describes some very graphic and harrowing moments that bring both of us to tears about three quarters of the way in, just so you know. And also a bit of a suggestion. You might like to head to Andrew's website, andrewquilty.com, and scroll through his images as you listen to this conversation, or better still, perhaps buy his book where you'll find many of them featured. It will add an extra layer of texture to this very, very important conversation. Andrew, thanks so much for joining me here at our little table wrapped in a blanket in, Byr- in the Byron Bay Forest. It's lovely to actually finally meet in person. Likewise. Thanks for having me, Sarah. I wouldn't mind doing a little bit of a 101 top line on the conflict in Afghanistan for people who may feel that they're not on top of it after it's dropped out of the headlines. You know, the Ukraine conflict seems to have pushed it off the front pages of newspapers. I guess the top line understanding that I have is it was triggered by 9-11. It was initially about capturing the al-Qaeda leader, Osama bin Laden. They didn't find him. Well, they did, I think, a decade later in a totally different country. But uh, the US and the Allies decided to invade, kick out the Taliban, and then hang around for a few decades until President Biden finally declared they were, were withdrawing last year. But you were there for eight and a half years from 2013, is that right? Yeah. I'm wondering, so from your perspective, why did the US invade and, and its allies, of course, and stay for so long? I think it's pretty clear. I don't think there's much debate about the fact that the primary reason for the invasion and the reason which wouldn't have existed if not for the very real and motivating factor of of 9-11. The 9-11 attacks on the US were planned from Afghanistan where Al-Qaeda, led by Osama bin Laden, was given a reluctant safe haven by the Taliban, which had been in power from uh, 96 um, through to 2001. So the initial reason I firmly believe was I mean, it was probably revenge, really. Um, and it was a war, an invasion that was sanctioned by the UN Security Council, what is commonly referred to as a legal war. And what you mentioned about some of the other possible motivating factors, including you know, saving Afghan women and other things like resources, oil, for instance, is, is a common misconception for why the US went to war there. Afghanistan doesn't have any oil. It has other minerals and opium, of course. I think the it's a um, there's no debate. It was straight up revenge for 9/11. Yeah, and and I suppose you know I, I don't think the um, George Bush and his war cabinet would would um, call it that. I, I think I mean they they wanted to prevent it from happening again, but I think the way they went in and the the very knee jerk way in which they went into Afghanistan was indicative of of revenge. You know, they and they didn't want to they didn't want to take any prisoners in the beginning. They didn't want to bring the Taliban to the negotiating table um, to 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 find a kind of political settlement. They just wanted to go in and smash the Taliban who had allowed Osama bin Laden safe haven after he'd been chased out of several other countries and seek revenge. I guess, look, it really went on for a long time, and I think there's a lot of conjecture as to whether the US and the Allies should have pulled out earlier than they did. But 
In your opinion, what did the West get wrong? Because they were there for such a long time and there was a lot of destruction. I mean, you know, we're talking trillions of dollars, we're talking thousands of lives spent in this conflict. Where did we go wrong? Why wasn't it solved earlier? I think part of the reason it all went wrong or, or that it never went entirely right is because the their mission was was never really defined. So you had um, very early on after the initial invasion, you had, for instance, uh, Barbara Bush, George Bush Jr.'s wife, took up the cause of Afghan women. And that became a big part of the optics, didn't it? And it the did. rhetoric it around did. the conflict. Yeah, yeah, mm. like a justification for staying there. Um, and then it became about reconstruction of the country. And so you had these kind of dueling missions. On the one hand, the US military or the, the international military led by the US wanted to go in there and rid the country of not only Al-Qaeda, but the Taliban. And they did that very successfully within a matter of months of the initial invasion in, in October 2001. The Taliban were completely decimated. Having said that, they were, they were decimated as a military force, but they weren't all killed or locked up. The vast majority of them moved across the border into Pakistan, where they stayed for the next several years, and where they were able to establish a, um, or re-establish themselves and then stage their insurgency, basically the, the war that kept the US there for the next 20 years. And so part of the reason that it failed, that, that war from an American point of view, is because of these, these dueling missions. They basically wanted to go in and destroy one element and then replace that with development of the new government, democracy, all the institutions, schools, hospitals, women's rights. And they did that uh, to an extent, but it was kind of superficial. They built schools and they built hospitals and the maternal and infant mortality improved out of sight, literacy and numeracy improved, but the war continued. And as it did, the, you know, this is a very a basic, um, abbreviated version of what happened. The simple presence of you know, at times 150,000 foreign, mostly non-Muslim soldiers traipsing around the country with weapons, with guns. In many places, they were not welcome at all. Yeah, you document a few sort of subtleties that were missed. And I think they're really telling. There's one example that you write about. A captain sort of went, I think, into a rural area disguised as a humanitarian worker. And, you know, this captain was asked to gather intelligence but it turned out entirely counterproductive, right? Because just missed a whole bunch of memos. Can you explain some of the subtleties there? So the US, one of the main military objectives for the US and the international military was to train up an Afghan counterpart um, in the model of their own militaries. And and so they, they trained them in all, all their ways and means. And the instance you're talking about, a young Afghan soldier was asked to go into a, a rural village posing as a humanitarian worker to um, survey the village. As he told the villagers, there was a new virus going around and he wanted to work out you know, how many people lived in each house, where they lived, so they could ostensibly deliver this non-existent vaccine. It was an intelligence exercise to find where this, um, this military objective, a, a target Taliban commander they wanted yeah. to kill, lived. And so they did this. They sent in the military team to assassinate this guy. And of course, this is one of hundreds or countless 
such exercises which undermined the humanitarian, the development mission by eroding the trust. It led to a spike in the polio virus because people weren't getting the vaccine. Yeah, the Taliban realised that these supposed humanitarian workers trying to eradicate polio or this imaginary disease were actually couldn't be trusted. Mm. So they stopped vaccine delivery to these rural areas and polio crept up. And that's like, yeah, it's a very perfect example of a microcosm of of what went wrong. And I think you also describe how there's these white American soldiers, men, who are invading homes, which I've heard you describe it really well, how private the home is, especially because of the beliefs around women showing their face in public and so on. Whatever we might think of those cultural mores, it's so insensitive to to send a white man into a home where the women and children are based. It's not how to do things. Did that strike you in that context as just really not cool? Yeah, I mean, it's it's obvious. I mean, you don't have to go to Afghanistan to find a culture where the home is sacrosanct. Imagine we're sitting here, 10, 12 Taliban fighters kicked in the door, bundled me up, put a hood over my head, manhandled you. How am I going to react to that? Totally inflammatory. When you you take that to Afghanistan, the sanctity of the home is even greater, partly because of the kind of overbearing nature of the way men see and and, and treat women in, in the family, particularly again in rural areas. And so it was it became a real issue of honor. Having their homes invaded, these these men just couldn't stand for it. And so they may have had nothing to do with the Taliban. They wanted revenge, just like mm. the Americans did after they got a bloody nose. So can I ask what you may have got wrong when you first arrived? Like, What did you have to learn along the way as a white man living in a culture like that? Like, this place became your home. So what were some misconceptions that you, know, you had to probably, I don't know, put aside eventually or work through or face up to? I knew so little about the country. Most of what I'd seen of Afghanistan had been from the perspective of foreign soldiers wading through, um, you know, wheat crops or dusty villages in in rural Afghanistan with with their weapons drawn, getting in fights. Very rarely from the perspective of the people who were having the, the weapons pointed at them or who were living on the on the edge of this war. I was going to a country that I had only seen from an outsider's perspective, really, and and had no sense of the people themselves or the country itself. And I also, I was a victim of that because I had learnt to see, I suppose, Afghans, people dressed in a certain way, these people that were fighting the, you know, the so-called goodies as a threat. 30 million people in Afghanistan and and a a small proportion of them were fighting the so-called goodies. The rest of them are, you know, among the the most hospitable people, cultures I've ever come across. That was the first thing. I mean, I, I was just, I was initially very struck by the hospitality of the people from a country that has been put through a meat grinder several times over for the last several hundred years, an international, a foreign meat grinder. I counted myself a part of, even though I wasn't part of the military. And so, yeah, I mean, the, the sort of ability to differentiate between the, the soldiers and the civilians of those countries and, and their ability to endure through it is pretty striking. We might move on to a topic which I think is threaded all the way throughout your book, and it's the idea of the moral conflict that you have felt um, in and around documenting suffering. 
And as a photographer, that's, I'm sure, you know, something that you have to face every time you take a photo is, is this conscionable. You talk about, or you, I should say, you write about a number of very harrowing incidents um, where you sort of, you know, a bomb is dropped and you go to the scene and you have to cover it. And you're met with those moments where you've got to look into people's eyes and go, should I be taking this photo or should I be helping? You know, what about the dignity of the person in this situation? There was one particular moment which, and for those listening, this is a little bit of a harrowing anecdote, but it's following a, an ambulance bombing in Kabul in 2018. Do you mind talking us through sort of where you were when it happened, how you arrived on the scene, and, and then what happened next? It was a cold winter's day, and I'd been asked by a friend of mine, a, a, a couple who I'd lived with in Kabul, who had recently left. They'd moved to Beirut, and they'd moved into a house, and they realised they had a floor that needed a Afghan carpet. I was about to go and visit them. So they'd asked me to go carpet shopping for them. So I was in this carpet shop um, in a popular street for Afghan crafts and carpets and things. And, and I was on the phone to them and showing them photos of carpets. And, and they were saying, yes, no, close, yes, no. All of a sudden, there was this very visceral thump that me and the, and the people in the shop kind of felt before we heard, we heard the, the boom that followed. It was very clearly a, a bomb, and it was a feeling and a, and a sound that I'd become fairly used to, um, having lived there for several years by then. And it was something that by, by that time, I'd started to be able to have some sense of the size of the bomb and its proximity. And so I could tell by, by the sound and the, the thump, the physical thump of this, that it was both quite large and quite close. And... And you had your camera with you? Yeah, I always carried my camera with me. And it wasn't, I mean, most people assume it's, you know, because you're waiting for moments like this or that you're ready. So I had my camera with me and I basically ran out of the carpet shop as the people in the shop sort of pulled down the shutters and I got up onto street level and I could see, like, before I was even there, this is like 20 seconds after it happened, all the other shopkeepers in the street were pulling down the shutters. It was like this... Um, a, a, a scenario that they'd been through before and there was this you know protocol that they went through it was like okay shut up shop get home or get away once i was out on the street a pattern had started to emerge in the years prior whereby a bomb would go off and then follow-up attackers would come to the scene with with guns okay so that's why these shop owners and locals knew get out yep. even though a bomb had dropped it generally follows with more trouble. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. yeah the, the Taliban fighters would come in with and, and to finish finish off the people that weren't killed in the initial explosion. And I didn't run immediately for the scene of the bomb, but I just sort of, I walked very slowly towards it and I could see it, it was at the far end of the street, probably 200 metres away. And there was you know, smoke rising and, and a flood of people running down the street towards me. Some of them had blood coming from their, their heads or blood on their clothes. And I just made my way slowly, wove through these people running towards me, taking photos as I went, allowing a couple of minutes to pass, in which time if follow-up attackers were coming, I hoped I wouldn't be caught up in it. By the time I got near the end of the street and the, you know, the destruction was greater, you know, the, the shop windows were blown out and doors blown in and, and cars were crumpled and a, 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 um, a shipping container had, had somehow ended up halfway down this street, probably from near the side of the bomb. 
And I sort of made my way around that. And then I started seeing victims on the ground um, or people kind of limping away with injuries, other people, other shopkeepers already sweeping up, you know, broken glass and debris from out the front of their shops, you know, probably three minutes after it happened. You arrive upon a scene, though, which you capture in a photo, which is quite iconic. There's sort of a bunch of people, um, about 20 or so, is that right? Mm -hmm. Can you describe what you saw there? Not everybody was killed. There were still some people who were alive. On the intersection at the end of this street, there was a pile of bodies um, right on the corner that were obviously very close to where the bomb had gone off. Probably 20 bodies, or 20 people, um, many of them already dead. Others that were still moving. Um, one man was sitting up in the middle of them. It was like a, it was like a puddle of, of bodies, probably you know, five or 10 metres wide. And this one man was sitting up in the middle of them and he was bloodied and dazed, but he was trying to operate his phone, I guess, to call his family or whoever it was, but he was conscious. And I took some photos of, of this from, you know, a, a bit of a distance, maybe five meters back of this that showed this group of bodies and victims. And, you know, all, all your senses are firing at this point and you're, you know, sensitive to sound and smell and um, really trying to keep your wits about you to see what's going on around you. You know, is there another threat? You know, there's police running around with their weapons drawn. You know, there's anything can happen in, in this moment. I could have been seen, you know, it would have been unusual to have seen me with a camera at this point. Um, and so it could e I could easily have been mistaken for who knows what. A threat of some sort. A threat of, of some sort. And so I, I was I was really just trying to get my bearings and, um, you know, work out what to point my camera at. I figured that this was the centre of where the blast had happened, but I knew I only had a couple of minutes to be there before I got kicked out by the security forces would come in and that turf me out. So I wanted to make the most of the time that I had. And so I very frantically took photos without taking much consideration for composition and the, the kinds of things that, you know, I usually have time to consider. And you know, a couple of minutes passed and I stayed and I had some photos and, you know, I had time to sort of walk around a bit and see things a bit more closely than I expected to. And I, you know, I was walking over the wounded and the, the dead and got to a point where I got so close to, to some of these victims who were still alive. And they're looking at you, I presume. Oh, I suppose they're looking at me. I mean, or, you know, I, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, so some of them were conscious at least. And I found that when I got within a certain range of this consciousness that I couldn't lift my camera and take it. It's a, too intimate. It's too intimate. Yeah, mm. exactly. And so, and these are people that are horrifically injured. Beyond you, know, you being able to help them. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, it's, it's hard to tell. And, you know, you see someone who's breathing or conscious, you assume that they've got a chance of survival. But you did come across a guy who seemed conscious. He seemed uninjured. And I think you called out to a police officer, didn't you, to say, hey, listen, come and help me with this guy. Let, let's get him. Mm -hmm. Let's get him to help. Yeah, he, he was lying on his back and he was sort of wedged in between a, a fence and a telegraph pole and he was still breathing, but I couldn't see any, um, he had some, you know, minor wounds on his face, but he was still breathing. And so I called his police officer over and to try and, you know, carry him out of there and get him to a, the ambulances that were starting to arrive. And the policeman took his feet and I went to the end of his head and his shoulders to, to try and unwedge him from this spot. And I'd put one hand under his shoulder to, or under his armpit and then another under his head to so his head wouldn't drag when we lifted his head wouldn't loll back when we lifted him and and when I put my hand under his head um 
my hand basically just went straight into the back of his head. He didn't have a oh, the back of a skull, and so my hand just basically cupped his brain. Mm. And I I kind of recoiled, and the and the um the policeman, you know, I think sensed what had happened, and he just he said swap spots and so i mean i don't even know what the point was at that point this guy was still conscious but there was no way he was going to survive mm. but we still we carried him out and we put him on a, a you know probably a, a door or something and and he was then carried yeah. off to an ambulance i honestly don't know how you frame that going forward having lived mm. through that mm. does it break your heart i mean is that a, a glib way of putting it or Oh gosh, is, you know it's. I mean, I'm tearing up, and I can see it <laughs> the same with you. I mean, it still obviously hits, right? Yeah, it does. I mean, my, my. I mean, I can tell you how I have reacted to that since. I mean, I, I it, it's not something that keeps me up at night these days. I, I, I went for two days after that where I didn't sleep a wink, and I was, I was, you know, on edge like I'd never been before. You know, jumping at shadows and things, but. You know, I spoke to a psychologist for a, a few times after that, and he seemed to think that my reaction was, you know, rational and healthy and and whatnot. And it's not something that I have nightmares about, but it's you know one of the things that you accumulate in your soul or consciousness or whatever it is. And it's one of a, a thousand parts that makes up my experience there, which is overall kind of a heartbreaking one. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I know you've asked this question in your book. Part of me wonders in 10, 20, 30 years' time when I look back on this, whether documenting the worst days in people's lives will be morally conscionable. How do you feel four years on from that incident or even a year on from, you know, when you left Kabul? Do you feel it's morally conscionable to be to have done what you were doing, documenting this? I think you can you can do the kind of work that me and my my colleagues do in a way that is respectful and represents an exchange that is both palatable to me, conscionable to me, and somehow beneficial is the wrong word for the subject of the interview or the or the photo important, or whatever. Or it's just important. Yeah, I mean, I I don't want to aggrandize what I do, and from what um, a number of these people told me, it, it, they were grateful to have a chance to share their experience or to get com- some kind of acknowledgement of the of their experience or their suffering 
and it's a cliche that um you know being a voice for the voiceless and things but i suppose there is some element of truth in that and and i suppose it's what you know despite it not being comfortable with the the cliche i suppose that that it is something that allows me to keep going back and and feel comfortable enough not to stop doing it at mm. least I think a big part of pain and human pain is having people bear witness to it. And I think for a long period that you were there, a lot of the journalists had left. The immediate conflict was gone, but a lot of these uprisings occurred over the years and there weren't that many journalists on the ground at times. So you remained, you know, and and you went there. I know you were also criticised for photographing the Taliban and for somehow humanising them. How do you respond to that, that criticism? Oh, I think it's totally valid. You're talking about the time in the in the weeks following the Taliban's uh, takeover of the country, when particularly in Kabul, these fighters, many of whom had never been to Kabul before, were were flocking to the capital, kind of savouring their victory. Many of them had come from rural villages, probably never even had electricity, certainly not at their homes, had never seen the the kind of infrastructure, the the bright shining lights of a big capital city like Kabul. A lot of the young men who are sort of probably excited about the adventure of it all. Yeah, like any young man or woman, you know, travelling abroad for the first time yeah. or, or, or travelling from country Queensland into Brisbane for the first time. And for me as a photographer, it was like a fascinating visual juxtaposition, very surreal scenes where you had these, you know, long bearded, bedraggled fighters probably owned one pair of clothes um, and a Kalashnikov. They were coming into into Kabul and sitting at, you know, ice cream parlors with bright pink fluorescent lights and walking through the streets um, in the opposite direction. And as a photographer, it was having been in Afghanistan for eight years by that point, I'd become fairly, I mean, Afghanistan is a visually incredible country as a photographer, but I'd become used to it as you do anywhere. And as a photographer, again, these scenes were completely new to me. And it was it was like I was seeing the, the city for the first time again, because it was a new city in many ways. The criticism was that by photographing these Taliban fighters um, in these situations, it was offensive for a lot of the people who had, certainly for those who had been forced to leave Kabul, who um, for whom it had been home, and had been forced to leave because of the the arrival of these men, I completely understand that, and I and I would have had a very difficult time um, watching that or looking at those photos if I was in their in their situation. But I don't think it was my job to self censor in that way, and I think that the difference was in this case, you know, perhaps what I'd been photographing for the last years, the last several years, would have been offensive to a different portion of the population. That portion of the population were not my friends and colleagues, whereas the people that were offended in this case, they were my friends and colleagues, or they were my my, my peers. Okay. And so I was much more. They were the people you know that followed me and who I followed on social media and things, and I had access to their criticism. I want to go to the emotionality of war, or at least back to it, because we've covered a little bit of it. Over the years, I have become friends via social media with a couple of other war correspondents, photographers. I've asked them some of these questions, and you know, I'd love to ask you some of these questions. And I think they're questions that many of us who watch what people like you do, who follow your work, who know your photographs, and have to try to fathom what it must be like for you doing that work we have these questions in our minds and our hearts. I guess one of the questions I want to start with is is really why you feel you needed to 
do this job. I know you kind of fell into it, but of course you chose to stay. You chose to continue to do this work. What drew you there and what kept you there? How did you end up doing this and and why are you doing it? The easy answer is that I fell into it. I went to Afghanistan planning to stay there for two weeks in the beginning. And to be completely honest, I think I wanted to kind of check that box. I wanted to be able to say, I've worked in a, I'm a photographer and I've worked in a conflict zone. I thought it would give me professional kudos. You're ambitious. I mean, you'd already won an award or at least one of your photos, I think, from the Cronulla Riots had ended up on the cover or been used by Time magazine just when you were straight out of school. Yeah, I think, you know, my motivations were probably primarily personal and professional at that point, but kind of superficial. It wasn't like I wanted to do the the minimum amount of work to get the you know, maximum amount of kudos or, you know, I wanted to be able to go to a bar and chat up a girl at a bar and say, oh, yeah, I've been to Afghanistan as a photographer. What would you say was really the reason? Like there must be something in you that had the itch, the urge, the hunger for a life that wasn't um, cosy and North Shore of Sydney. I don't think I have the answer to the question yet. When I arrived in Afghanistan, it was when most of my contemporaries, my peers back home were getting married and starting to have children. It wasn't that I was conscious of not wanting that, but for whatever reason, I that wasn't where I was. And, and then when I ended up in Afghanistan, I found a group of people, the foreigner community there. Other journalists, other photographers. Who were at a similar stage of life. And, and it was uh, irrespective of age. You know, there were people younger than me and people, you know, in their 40s and 50s. They were single. They didn't have children. They didn't have mortgages. Well, they may not have even chosen it. It may have found them and it felt comfortable and and it did for me. It was all of a sudden I didn't have to worry about the rat race back home, you know. We might come back to that towards the end, but I actually want to pick up on some of the stuff you have witnessed about human nature. You've seen a lot of suffering and um, you've also seen incredible resilience. But I'm wondering if you have a take on the human ability to suffer and then also to fight to live. You know, have you been astonished by this with what you've seen done through the camera lens? I suppose what I've seen in Afghanistan is a different way of dealing with adversity. Whereas I suppose in Australia, in in the West, we do everything we can to live life comfortably. We live beyond our means in in many ways, in order to be comfortable. And we try to live as long as possible. We try to put off death as long as possible, um, often to the you know the detriment of our final days. Mm, prolonging things. Mm. Mm. In Afghanistan, there's Afghan, you know, look again, I'm, I'm going to have to generalise here, but I, I would say that across the board, most Afghans tend to live more day-to-day, week-to-week than as far in, in advance as, as we would. And that's because they're used to adversity and instability and having not only a change of central government, but change of who's in control of the territory in which they live, the ability to you know, drive from their home to the shops, you know, not only because of conflict, but because of natural disaster and and poverty, which are also endemic if natural disasters can be endemic. Adversity, broadly speaking. The other thing um, Afghans have coping mechanism or something that is, you know, genetically handed from one generation to another is this fatalism. It's also a part of their religious beliefs in Islam that, that they're 
lives and deaths are, are preordained and the saying, inshallah, which means if God wills it or it's God's will, meaning that their destiny is out of their hands. So it, it enables them to deal with loss and it's suffering. A frame, it's a framework. Yeah, it, they're not just in this kind of free fall every mm-hmm. time there's a disaster. And there's a genuine belief in it. It's not like to some abstract notion. It's really innate. This is not something that you would obviously wish on anyone, but their exposure to suffering enables Afghans to, I mean, they have experience with it. And death there is very, is a lot more public than it is here. And it's not shunned or hidden. And there is a very methodical way of grieving, um, again, through religion. Children are exposed to it just as adults are from a, from a young age. And, and so it, they are, they it's are processed. reared. It's processed and they're, they're reared, um, experiencing life and death. And, and of course, in a, in a country like Afghanistan where the, the life expectancy is, is a lot lower, um, than, than in Australia, they experience it more often than we do as well. I ask a question in the podcast quite often of guests taking from a sort of an Eric from inquiry, what is left if we lose it all? So it's an interesting one perhaps to ask you of maybe the Afghan people. You know, they've had so much loss. What is left for them? What, is, what matters to them, you know, day to day, but also as a broader thing? You know, what do you see as the central themes to their meaning? Well, I mean, first of all, for a portion of the population in Afghanistan now, all is not lost. In fact, it's quite the opposite. You know, they have, I'm talking about the Taliban here and those who support the Taliban, they have, you know, they've liberated their country from the invaders and um, they can build their country in the um, the way they, they wish it to be built. For my peers, my friends and my colleagues, Afghan peers and friends and colleagues, I would say that it, it's, it would be fair to say that there were times and maybe they're coming out of it now that it felt like all was lost and that having been forced into exile, they were left with nothing. But what do they draw on in those moments? Mm. What do they come back to? What keeps them clinging and fighting forward and choosing to live, you know, choosing to fight for life? Look, I, I might um I might even try and answer it just from my own perspective because Yeah, that'd be lovely. Yeah, look, I, I think um although I didn't lose anywhere near as much as as my Afghan friends and colleagues and, and those I didn't know, but those who were exiled or, you know, lost lost family members or jobs or prosperity or hopes and dreams. But I suppose witnessing it, witnessing my friends go through it, made me see how fragile life was and and perhaps the kind of scenario that that triggered the quote at the root of your question. And yeah, it definitely had a very, a pretty palpable effect on me where I have found it difficult to, and you know, this is only a year after Kabul fell to the Taliban and these people were forced out of the country that, yeah, I found it difficult to see the point in, I suppose, building things or, you know, and I'm talking about relationships. I've found it, I, I, I feel quite fatalistic about relationships, which again, is it was at the core of the, the answer that Fromm gave. And if, if the rug can be pulled out from underneath you and your friends and your family in the blink of an eye, what's the point of it all? So I, I think I'm yet to come out the other end with an answer, but, um, but I can absolutely understand the, the kind of crisis that brings on the question. Yeah. 
Yeah, but you just haven't found your answer yet. No. I mean, it and, sounds like it's all still very close. To yeah, very much you. so. And, and I think, you know, probably my grasping to try and like reaching for relationships and, and you know, craving them, you know, and, and some are more simple than others and, and those that have, have deep roots, um, I've, I've certainly clung to those and, and relished those and really um, tried to strengthen them and others intimate relationships that don't have those deep roots are they're the ones that I think will be harder to to build and to to nurture with this mindset that I've come out of this period with and and I don't know if it's the same for the Afghan friends and colleagues who are going through but um you know maybe their resilience enables them to if it is innate as I suggested um enables them to weather these these moments better than it does me you know having grown up you know with, without wanting for anything and um, never having faced the having everything taken away, even though it wasn't taken away from me, just watching it happen to others, sort of like I've, feels like I've taken it on somehow. I can understand that. And I so appreciate such an honest, considered answer. It wasn't what I was expecting, but I enjoyed hearing you talk your way through it. It's funny because these other war correspondents and photographers that I've got to know, they're all lone wolves. And I don't know what came first, the loner thing where you go out into the world and put yourself on front lines because that's sort of the space, the edge is where you feel comfortable, which you've got to go to on your own necessarily, or whether the work then renders you quite alone. And yet you spend your life documenting people who then grasp onto belonging and to family and come back to family. It's an interesting dichotomy to be, to observe. But I almost feel nervous to ask this. We, we talked about this when we met at a hectic writer's sort of function over a drink. And I, I asked you, it was probably an inappropriate moment just about how you're coping with it all, whether you've got PTSD. And we talked about the book by Sebastian Junger, um, Tribe, which documents this quite interesting phenomenon of how people who've come back from war, and he referred, he was in Afghanistan, wasn't he? He was, yeah. Mm. And he talks about how um, PTSD kicks in more from homecoming. It's the contrast when you get home after such a huge moment in your life and you go back to the humdrum of suburbia and everything. And there's this distinct disconnect from meaning. And that's what causes the trauma. And I found that book incredibly powerful. And I know that you've read it. Do you feel that that's at the heart of what you're feeling? This meaning, you know, uh, yeah, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but is, is, is that what you're feeling? A, a disconnect from meaning? I think so. Yeah. I, I had the very deluded belief that leaving Afghanistan would represent a, you know, a homecoming of sorts where. That's right. You mentioned you'd get to come home to Australia. You could wear shorts and, and have a beer at a pub, you mm-hmm. know, hurrah, freedom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, these very, I suppose, basic representations of, of freedom and of safety and comfort and security. And that kind of came crumbling down. I don't think I'd realized it yet, but I remember when I was packing in, in May this year, I was back in Kabul packing up my things. My housemates that I'd lived with for a few years, they'd walk past my, my room as I was packing my things into you know, two big chests to put on a ship. And we'd just like look at each other and I'd be in tears and they'd say, can I shut the door? Cause I don't want to watch you packing up. And yeah, coming home, it was like, it was the opposite to what I expected. I all of a sudden, I, I mean, it even took me a few months to, to realize this, but the, these very superficial 
markers of, of security and comfort and safety were things that I actually had, strangely enough, in Kabul. And my comfort was, you know, my home and where I had a dog and my room where I had, you know, my things and my my friends and my community and security and safety were my purpose, which was very clear and defined and satisfying, gratifying professionally and personally and leaving all that behind just, I, yeah, I didn't, I had no idea that, that those things had, were so important to me. And th- those were the things that um, probably enabled me to stay there for so long and to call Kabul home. So what are you going to do now, Andrew Quilty? <laughs> do you know what's next? There doesn't have to be an answer to that, of course. No, I don't know what's next. I, I mean, I, something that will keep me busy in the coming months will be putting together a, a photo book from my time in Afghanistan. That's something that will keep me occupied. But that's not a way to live a life, is no, it? <laughs> no, I mean, it, it's, it's, um, it'll keep me occupied. It'll give me, a, you know, a small target to aim towards. Otherwise, I've, I've just, I've just sort of started reading. Uh, reading books for pleasure again, and I'm, um, you know, realizing that you know every couple of pages I'll underline something or jot down a note from it because it's you know sparking something in me, and I'm I'm waiting for something to spark some inspiration. It must be hard not knowing when you had sort of structure and you were probably a little ensconced in that Afghanistan mindset of living in the moment, you know, because you don't know when the next bomb's going to drop. Yeah, it must be very, very hard to have sort of this open future. Mm. And uh, it's a complete shift in mindset. Mm. And most people think that that's a, an exciting prospect or they, they assume that it must be an exciting prospect for me, but mm. it's, I, don't know, I kind of find well, it there's terrifying. A, there's, an, uh, there's a Vedic saying, to be rendered choiceless is the ultimate freedom. You know, mm. in the inverse of that mm-hmm. um, is also true, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always think, um, I mean... In, in this world, um, and you can probably correct me, but I always think, you know, choice is often the, the source of a lot of anxiety for, Absolutely. for people in, in the cultures that we've grown up in. Um, and all of a sudden I have, you know, I could, yeah, I could do anything. I mean, it's not making me anxious yet, but it's, um, it's quite unsettling. I think a lot of people listening to this would relate for different reasons. Mm-hmm. I think many, many Australians are facing a crisis of meaning. Mm-hmm. A lot of it stemming from uh, having comfort for too long mm-hmm. and it feels meaningless. Mm-hmm. So, Andrew, I really appreciate your honesty <laughs> on this. You know, you, you've come back into Australia from a very different experience with a mm. different set of eyes and through a different lens, but some of what you've shared here I think will resonate for a lot of people listening. So thank you so much for the openness. My pleasure. Thank you, Sarah. I really don't want to add too much to, well, where this conversation landed, only to thank Andrew again. In case, Andrew, you listen to your own interviews and and you listen all the way to the end. And perhaps to invite all of you listening to use any feelings that Andrew's generous rawness brought up to ponder this idea of finding more meaning in harsh, difficult conditions. And also to think about how, when we go to that space, how it takes us to a living in the present kind of mindset that the spiritualists all talk about. It's a theme that comes up over and over with many of my guests here on Wild, that relentlessly seeking comfort and avoiding hardship does humanity a massive disservice. 
If you want to dive in deeper to this idea, we both mentioned in the conversation Sebastian Junger's book, Tribe. I've put the link to the book in the show notes if you want to go and check it out. And in fact, I'm in the process of trying to get him on to this podcast. So stay tuned for more on that. All right, everyone, please take care and um, continue on your own wild journey. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.